Well, a little bit later in their service, we'll get the privilege of partaking of this meal we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. But let's now turn to God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Ephesians 3, a passage that speaks of the love of Christ in some profound ways. Ephesians 3, and we'll start by reading verses 14 to 19. Paul says there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We'll stop there. Well, this is certainly one of the most poetic, most rich, most memorable parts of Scripture. And no doubt, just in general, the theme of God's love has, has given birth probably to more songs than any other. It's one that stirs our hearts quite naturally. But why did Paul write these words here in Ephesians? Why put them here? You probably know that Ephesians has two main parts, two halves to it. A first half being more doctrinal, more about what is. And then a second half being more practical, what should be, how we live this thing out. So here at the end of this doctrinal section, the first half of the book of Ephesians, Paul puts this very lofty prayer request centered on the love of God in all directions. And what is it and why is it here? Remember that the Bible is not just a collection of various religious sayings. The book of Proverbs is like that, but most of the rest of the Bible isn't like that. Uh, It has context. It has story. The Bible is itself, in a sense, one big story. And then along the trajectory of the big story, you have little bits within it, like a letter to a church. Like here, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's a letter written to a church, and most likely intended to be read to that church in one sitting, perhaps on a Sunday morning meeting. It's a letter meant to be read, not just picked apart like we like to do and and should do at times, one little verse at a time. We sometimes have verses on a calendar. You might have verses on a, a flip card. Maybe you're working through a memorization program. All those are really good things to do. I'm not discouraging that in any way. But it does sort of facilitate our tendency to treat the Bible as a collection of bitty sayings, not a whole. And sometimes when we look about, when we think about context in a letter like Ephesians, sometimes that context needs to transcend even the chapter breaks that are in our English Bibles here. Those chapter breaks weren't put there by the original authors. They're there for our convenience so we can navigate together in a corporate meeting like this where I can say, go to chapter 3, verse 2, and you know what I'm talking about. So it's good that they're there, but it's bad that we sometimes think 
we wouldn't dare back up to a chapter before to see what's happening here in a later part, what it means. What I mean is that it's easy for us to read just a verse or two from the end of Ephesians 3 and be satisfied. Hear a great message about God's love floating there, that his love is infinite, it's immeasurable, it's incomprehensible. And to move on, But what got Paul, in the first place, thinking about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ? We have to go back to chapter 2, verse 11 for that. Go to chapter 2, verse 11. From chapter 2, verse 11, to where I started reading in Ephesians 3, Paul has been unpacking and rejoicing in a reality that in Christ... The nations are invited to fully be included in the grace of God. In other words, Paul launches into that lofty prayer request, which we just read, about knowing the riches of God's love, only after one and a half chapters of talking about something that we think is just a given, that Gentiles are included, or that God wants you in. We think that's a given. It wasn't always so. So look at chapter 2, verse 11. We could call this section, 11 and 12, Paul reminding them of what once was. He reminds them of what once was. In verses 11 to 12, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jews. Verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What dark descriptions of our natural state. I mean, just hear those again. Separate from Christ, aliens from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants and the promises, having no hope without God, floating about in the world. That's what it means to be, what verse 11 says, a Gentile or the uncircumcised. That's most of us here. In the Old Testament, God made a distinction He set apart a people for himself in his wisdom, maybe mysteriously, but but certainly so. He revealed himself to a specific people so that he can say in Exodus 11, as he's freeing the people, his people, from the clutches of Egypt and their slavery there, not a dog will growl against any of my people that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He makes a distinction. One got buried in the Red Sea. One got delivered through the Red Sea. Can you feel something of that hopelessness? Can you feel what it might have been to be left out without hope, without God, strangers, to the covenants, just unaware of the covenants. You say, this sounds mean, this sounds unfair. Yeah, but it's undeniable. We're so used to our 
New Testament, global-oriented orientation, our, our situation, that we forget that in the Old Testament, God showed himself to a people. He made a distinction. And it seems perhaps unfair that he would do that, but none seek after God. Israel, as Abraham's wandering through the desert, it's, it's, not, it's not Abraham who goes looking for God, but God who goes, calls looking, uh, goes looking for Abraham. It's not Moses who goes talking and calling for God, but God who calls on Moses. None seek after God. So all the world is born freely ignoring, not knowing or caring. And Gentiles through the ages like me, like you, especially like those before the time of Christ, cared not about the covenants, the covenants, the promises, cared not about the fulfillment of a Messiah to come. Who cares about a Messiah? You don't need one if you make up your own gods outside the family of God, and they don't know that they're outside or don't care that they're outside. We were all like this. Without Christ, we would all be like this. We are born strangers to God without hope. That's where it begins. Paul reminds them of what once was. Secondly, he reminds them of what changed in Christ. What changed? Starting in verse 13, to the end of the chapter, he reminds them of what changed in Christ. And notice in verse 13, it begins, but now. What a transition. What great words, but now. Once were, but now. Now, in Christ, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. A new way. A new way of being in Christ Jesus and being brought near by his blood. Now, on the one hand, this isn't a new way because in the Old Testament, salvation was by grace. It wasn't according to works and it wasn't merely according to nationality. It was by grace and in view of Christ's coming. In that sense, Jesus isn't a new way. But in another sense, Old Testament salvation was according to more general promises, a more general covenant. Now we have salvation, not in terms of God's love generally, not in terms of a national covenant, not in terms of mere promises for mercy or forgiveness, but we have it revealed in Jesus' life and his death. It is by his blood that we know salvation and that we are saved. In that sense, it's a new way. Hebrews even uses that very language, that by the blood of Jesus, we have a new and living way that's open for us. It's a new hope. You see in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, For he himself is our peace. We have the hope of peace with him now. He's made us both, both Jew and Gentile, one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We see now that there's forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, the law has been abolished with its commandments and its ordinances. 
He's now put us together. He's now made one new man, verse 15 tells us. He's now made peace. He's, according to verse 16, he's reconciled us to God in one body through the cross. He brought peace, according to verse 17. Isn't this all wonderful? According to verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but now fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, as opposed to before, without God in the world. In the world sounds gloomy when you have without God next to it. It sounds desolate and lonely. But now we've been brought near, now we've been brought in, we're now members of the household of God. According to verse 20, we now have access through Jesus Christ, the foundation stone. We now have been put together, according to verse 21, put together into one body to be, what does it say? A holy temple. In the Lord, a holy temple. In verse 22, we are being built together for a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A new way, a new hope, culminating in a new temple, us being his temple. In the old covenant, Gentiles had no right to draw near to the temple, not to the inner parts not without special regulations. Now Ephesians 2 so boldly asserts Gentiles are the temple. With the Jews, with those who believe, they are the temple. Okay, now on to chapter 3. Notice this. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, and in chapter 3, verse 14, you see the phrase, for this reason. See that? For this reason. So when you see it twice like that, it's always good to know that that's it's breaking up a section, right? That helps us understand something of the structure of Paul's thought when he's using something like for this reason two different times in the same chapter. So the first of these, verses 1 through 13, tell us this, that he reminds them that this is why he's a prisoner, why Paul is a prisoner. For this reason, he says, I'm a prisoner. And when he says he's a prisoner, don't miss the fact that that means he proclaims and he suffers. So he's going to tell us now why he proclaims, why he suffers, because it says for this reason, right? And notice chapter 3, verse 3, he starts talking about this mystery. Why is Paul a prisoner? Why does Paul proclaim? And why does he suffer for it? Because this mystery was revealed to him. He says, verse 3, picking up in the middle of a sentence, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly to you. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, what is this mystery? And whatever it is, if it's what we saw in chapter 2, why does Paul call it a mystery? I mean, maybe you're protesting a little bit and saying, didn't the Old Testament allow for Gentiles to join in with God's people? 
And the answer to that is yes, there are examples of that. There are foreshadows of God's mercy going global with someone like Rahab. Or maybe you'd ask the question, didn't the Old Testament speak of a time when God's mercy and his worship and and his, his presence would go global in a new and different way? So why does Paul call it a mystery? Why does Paul act like, hey, I got something special here that you don't know about? Isn't it in the Old Testament? Wasn't it promised from before? Well, it's not that there were no foreshadows of God's glory going global, no signs of salvation and worship going global in the Old Testament. There were. You have as early as Genesis 12, that in Abraham, he'd be a blessing to all the nations. And in Abraham, there would be a multitude of nations. There were also hints of Gentile salvation in the Old Testament. And these these promises, like in the Psalms, of more to come. In Isaiah, more to come of global glory, global worship, God's global presence. So what's the difference in the New Covenant? And why does Paul call it a mystery as he speaks of it here? Well, what was a mystery was when that would happen how that would happen, and to what extent that would happen, that Gentiles would come in and that Gentiles would be accepted. When would this happen? They didn't know. They had promises. They had hints. They had the the Psalms calling on the nations for global praise. But it wasn't clear when this was going to happen, when this age would come. How would it happen? I mean, we know how it happens now, We know what the Gospels say about Jesus, that the Messiah would come and he would suffer, he would die, he would be raised, and that would be the basis for all forgiveness, both in the past and in the future. We know that. They didn't know all that in the Old Testament, did they? I mean, you've got Isaiah 53 showing a suffering servant, but uh, you also got a lot of real lofty king Messiah-like passages about judgment and glory and all that, and they weren't sure how to fit it all together. That's why they were at times so confused about Jesus. He didn't seem to be living up to more than half of the promises. He didn't seem like a glorious, lofty, regal king. We know This plan comes in two stages. First, suffering, then glories to follow. But that's what Paul's talking about here as to what's a mystery in the Old Covenant, what's revealed now in the New. And to what extent this would happen. To what extent Gentiles would come in and be forgiven, be accepted, be included. Would they have the same identity with true Israel? Would they be sort of second class to Israel's first class? Paul's saying here, it wasn't clear in the Old Covenant, what we know now, that Jew and Gentile in Christ would be equal. That Jew and Gentile in Christ would be one, the same. That's the mystery that was hidden in ages past and is now revealed through Paul and through others in the New Testament. Ephesians 3.6 is explicit that this is what the mystery is. Look at 3.6. This mystery is that, 
You know the definition's coming, right? The answer's coming. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow, excuse me, fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, let's go back to chapter 2. Let me read some key verses, some of which we've already seen, noting Paul's emphasis here about both, and one body, and you also, and now we're fellow, and there's everyone, it's the same. Notice behind me in the center screen the words that are underlined. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. I'll just pull out some phrases here. Where he says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one. Or, verse 15, That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. It's almost marriage language, isn't it? The two becoming one. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. 17, he came and preached peace to you. Who? You who were far off. And peace to those who were relatively near. Those who were of ethnic Israel. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together, it grows together. Verse 22, in him you also, you Gentiles also, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Don't stop there. Look at chapter 3, verse 6, which we just read. The Gentiles are Fellow heirs, members of the same body. Or in verse 8, Paul says he came to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. They didn't get some of the riches of Christ, half of the riches of Christ, temporary riches of Christ, second-class citizen riches of Christ. No, the unsearchable ones. Verse 9, he says that he came to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. In verse 15, he prays to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And in verse 18, he prays that they would comprehend with all the saints the extent of Christ's love. The same hope, the same Savior, the same forgiveness, the same access, the same primary identity, the same Savior, the same purpose. No surprise that when Paul needs to appeal to the Ephesian church to pursue unity together in chapter 4. Look at verse 4. What does he say? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's tying it all together in Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile now, now one. According to chapter 3, verse 7, Paul was made a minister for this gospel. And in verse 8... He was made a minister for this gospel to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, that he might bring to light for everyone what is the plan of that mystery. Now look at verse 10. So that through the church, this mixed breed, 
To the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be on display in heaven. That's really what the second half of that verse means when it talks about powers and authorities in heavenly places. It's talking about angels. God came up with this plan to show off to angels, to impress his angels. And then verse 12 Paul suffers like he does. He goes to prison like he does. He proclaims like he does so that we would have boldness, access, confidence through faith. Look at verse 13. He says there, part of this would be so that we wouldn't lose heart, even in the face of such severe suffering. Paul suffering for them. Don't lose heart. Instead, see that suffering unflinchingly as your glory. Your glory, because it's the means by which the gospel came to you. Paul's preaching, his suffering, his imprisonment, was for the gospel getting to the Gentiles. That's God's plan. That was their glory. Now this last section, back to where we started. Therefore, Paul prays. You see that in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, the second for this reason, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And he prays that they would get it. That's what he prays. He prays, he prays that they would get how great this, this all is. You see, at the end of chapter 3 there, there are several prayer requests, but... But really what's central is comprehending Christ's love. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 3, he prays that according to the riches of God's glory in Christ, he would grant you to be strengthened. Okay, so it's a prayer request to be strengthened. And then in verse 17, that he might dwell in your hearts through faith, so you might be filled. He prays they'd be strengthened and filled in order. So they would get, they'd comprehend how great his love is. Again, multiple prayer requests there at the end of chapter 3, but one is central, comprehending Christ's love. Strengthen so that you see his love. Him dwelling in your hearts by faith so that you sense his love. Look at verse 18. To know what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth. Isn't it amazing that Paul prays for the strength to comprehend what seems to be incomprehensible? No doubt, whatever this breadth, length, height, depth thing means, it's pointing at something that sounds infinite, right? Like a compass, all the way in that direction, all the way in this direction, all the way up there, all the way down there. Paul's praying that they would comprehend the incomprehensible. And it's even clear by verse 19 when he says, that which surpasses knowledge. They can comprehend it apparently. He prays for that. And yet, it's beyond mere knowledge. On the one hand, God must reveal it apparently. On the other, this isn't purely passive. It's not just... A prayer request floating out there waiting for God to act and for Ephesian Christians to just get zapped. 
Surely he expects that his prayer request will incite them to work to comprehend breadth and height and length and depth of Christ's love. What does that mean? The breadth and length, height and depth of Christ's love other than just hinting poetically at something big, infinite, multidirectional. Well, John Stott has the turn of phrase on this. He says, The love of Christ is broad enough that it encompasses all mankind. It's long enough to last for all eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. So, it's broad, it's long, it's deep, it's high. Didn't we see something like this in Psalm 113 a couple of Sundays ago? Remember, God is high above the heavens, and yet he stoops to rescue out of the ash heap and to raise them up to sit with princes. And his praise should be from the rising of the sun to its setting all over the globe. Broad, deep, long, high. And as if it's not enough to pray just that, The end of verse 19 just knocks your socks off with the gall. Paul says that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Is that it, Paul? Really? They'd be filled with all the fullness of God? Surely this is too much. No, it's not. And he tells us it's not with the very next verse. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Oh, that's a great floater verse, isn't it? That's a great three-by-five card. That's a great calendar verse. It's great for whatever tomorrow's problems are. He is able to do more than I would even ask or think. And it's true. But it's so much richer when we see it embedded right here in its context And we get that it's really about knowing God's love. He is able for you to further comprehend his love. And dare we say, somehow, he is able to fill us up with the fullness of God. I don't know how. Certainly this will be more fulfilled in the age to come than in this one. And who knows how it will be fulfilled in the age to come, right? If the old covenant had mystery about how Gentiles get saved, what will it mean in the new heaven and the new earth when we're free from sin, when it's a whole new creation, when his glory is as the sun When that's the case, I don't know exactly how we'll be filled with all the fullness of God, but I think we'll have more of it, and a whole lot more of it, and certainly more than we can now comprehend. This changes everything, doesn't it? So Paul wraps up this great chapter with exclamation of praise to him be glory verse 21 in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever 
Amen. The forever and ever, through all generations, I think points us to what's beyond just now. It points us to the fact, who knows what's to come as we pray for things like knowing more of his love, being filled with all the fullness of God. This changes everything. This changes our assurance. A love this profound, this complex, this historic, this patient, this steady, this eternal, this broad, this deep, this high, this long. A love like this doesn't rest on you. Doesn't rest on me. Doesn't rest on tomorrow. Doesn't rest on tomorrow's performance. This helps our assurance. This helps our worship as we stand in awe and want to join Paul in the exclamation of verse 21. To him be glory forever. This changes something about mission as well, doesn't it? I mean, this is Paul saying, this is why I'm in prison. This is why I'm writing for you. Don't be disheartened in my suffering and in my imprisonment because it's your glory. It's your salvation. And this is his plan all along. That Christ gets preeminent praise with this plan at this time. That in him it was revealed how, when, and to what extent God's love would cover this world. And he would welcome sinners. So assurance starts with understanding something of his love. Worship starts with Understanding something of his love. Mission is motivated by understanding the great extent of his love. So let us tonight marvel afresh. And with new depth and with greater praise at riches which are unsearchable. It's the language of chapter 3 verse 8. Riches which are unsearchable. Or verse 10, wisdom which is manifold. Let's stand in awe fresh of a mystery that was unforeseeable. A plan so intricate, so patient, so beautiful. A salvation so personal, so intimate, so desperately needed. A love so incomprehensible. And yet the strength and the filling and the faith to grow in understanding that incomprehensible love. Verse 20 talks about a power which is unthinkable. And this chapter ends with a glory that is so singular. It's on Christ and no one else. It's so universal. It's so eternal. Our Lord gave, her, gave us a supper meal, a little meal, that shows us in symbol form what is the basis for this great hope. It shows us in symbol form what is the extent of our need. He had to die to bring us in. And it shows us the extent of his love. He loved unto death. This meal reminds us that the work is finished. He is not here. He is risen. He's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God so we can partake in faith and joy.